you know, as an African-American in a continually kind of minority setting, one does get tired. Have I done anything that's racist in nature? Have I committed an act of racism? It gets to be a lot for me to always be the one in the room to have to educate people. I mean, at some point it's common sense. I just can't even believe that I ever had those feelings. I just want to tell all, every racist person me, I want to say, <laughs> racism hurts everybody. I feel like that's the problem that we're facing now. We're getting the truth, or some of the truth, that we're looking for. It's just nothing comes after that truth. On the next Janice Adams Show, live from the Sojourner Truth Library on the campus of the State University of New York at New Paltz. Trying to make it real compared to what... How many people got to hear Janice's talk last night? Can I just show of hands? I have to say, that was amazing for me. I don't know how it was for you guys. Anybody have comments on that? I'm just curious, any thoughts on that? It was strong, it was strong medicine, um, yeah. As she recounted the different experiences, it looked like she was telling my story. And I checked with some other women who also graduated in the 60s, and we all felt like she was telling our story. It was amazing. Wow. You know, just going through all the events that we went through at the same time she was. It was just unbelievable. Hey, welcome, welcome. Come on in. Um, it was more of an eye-opener to see that in the 60s, yeah. <laughs> in the 60s that they're going through the same problems that we're just still mm -hmm. trying to fight till today. Um, and that kind of spoke to me. Mm -hmm. yeah. So we are here. There is no agenda. That's the thing about these conversations. Mm -hmm. um, the agenda is um, our coming to a better understanding of the ways that these kinds of um, oppress oppression or exclusionary experiences have impacted all of us in various ways and to learn from each other. That's, that's the whole point and it's just we pick it up wherever we are. I've been doing conversations like this in the library for a while and I'm very, very pleased uh, to welcome Janice Adams here today. Uh, I also wanted to introduce uh, on my left uh, Ronnie Claypool who is on the board of the historic Huguenot Street uh, which is right here in New Paltz. And uh, you may, if you were at the talk, you'll remember that uh, Janice gave a strong shout out to the work of Historic Huguenot Street in kind of uncovering the full history of Ulster County of New Paltz that has been in many ways suppressed in, in, in the fact that the, the, the residents of that community own slaves and um, that complicates our picture of, of, that, of this town and of New York State. So. I'm very happy to have Ronnie here. Thank you for coming, Ronnie. So I had a couple of things I just wanted to say. Uh, this is a conversation that can be uncomfortable. Like we are talking about things that can bring discomfort. And the challenge in that situation is to resist our first impulse, which is to find comfort. And that often takes the form of talking a lot, interrogating the other person, what we want to do is be okay with discomfort in this space and help each other stay okay with discomfort, but also recognize that many who speak may be speaking from a place of vulnerability. So we want to have a care for everyone who takes the, the, the risk of coming forward and making themselves vulnerable in that way. Thing two is just this lovely piece on dialogue that I read in, a, in Being Peace by Thich Nhat Hanh. In a true dialogue, both sides are willing to change. We have to appreciate that truth can be received from outside of, not only within, our group. If we do not believe that, entering into dialogue would be a waste of time. So I think that's something to just cogitate on as we're, as we're talking. In these conversations that we have every week in the library, if something is burning on your heart, in your mind, you have the microphone. Anybody who is feeling something that's really working on them right now, I invite you to come up, talk about it, bring it up. Hi, I'm Genoveva, and um, I just wanted to 
uh, kind of explained what I felt after I saw the first performance of Kill To Kill a Mockingbird from last night. Um, it made me cry three times, and I wouldn't, <laughs> and I didn't really thought it would be so shocking to me because I saw it before and I read the play. I knew what was going, <laughs> I knew what was going to happen, but that's why I love theater. I think because it really brings you back in time, and they're doing a, a judge against an African American because he raped a girl, but in fact, what really happened is that the girl um, seduced him, and since he didn't wanted to do anything to her, she just locked him up with her in the same room. So when his, her dad arrived, when she saw her and the slave, um, hit her, and he, the, the slave ran away. So they put, up, they put up a story. They said, he raped me. Well, it was something totally, completely different. So what it really made me think is that, like, did this whole thing really change? Thank you. Strong. For those who may not know, <laughs> To Kill a Mockingbird takes place in the late 50s, I believe, is when it's set. Um, it's not like the way remote past. Um, it is the present as far I as... I think it takes uh, place in the 30s, but was yeah. written I'm in wrong. the 50s. Okay, it was written yeah. in the 50s. Thank you. Thanks but, for the correction. But it's okay. really focused on it's, the 30s. It's, it's, in, it's in the 30s, but, but still well beyond actual slavery days. Um, Jim Crow. Under, under, under Jim Crow and Bussy versus Ferguson. Uh, I want to thank you for your talk last night, which I went to and really enjoyed. And there were two things that for me stood out among many, many things that you said. One is that all of us feel pain. And I thought that was really good because so many times people think of their own pain, their own group whether it's African-American or Asian-American or Latino or Jewish or LGBTQ and all of us, I mean, every single person, even white males <laughs> feel pain. Uh, so I thought that was something that, that really resonated. And the other thing was um, you said we have to change how we teach history. And I thought that was very important. Not so easy to do. I don't know how you propose doing it, but if you want to step up to the microphone. <laughs> I have my I microphone on. You have your I'm on the hotspot all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of the pain, the almost revelatory part of it is to establish that people of color feel pain since it was part of the institutionalization of slavery to say that one of the justifications for it is that Africans, then African Americans, did not feel pain. In terms of changing the way history is taught, I also quoted in that speech last night the throwaway phrase that a lot of people are very cavalier about, which is, you know, history is written by the winners. Well, I mean, that to me is one of the greatest admissions that it's a crock of lies in the beginning. So I think that where we begin in terms of changing the way the story is told is to admit that we have not been telling the truth. That's going to be the hardest part, I think, is to admit that. Okay, everybody's willing. You can give up the cherry tree. Okay, so maybe George Washington didn't do the cherry tree. <laughs> All right, we'll give, we'll give you that one, you know. But the fact of redefining who George Washington was, um, what the country is, not only that he owned slaves, but more importantly, that he enslaved people. I can own this bottle of juice because as far as I know, it's a thing. And it was made to be a bottle of juice. But a person was not made to be a slave, no matter what American culture and history has tried to establish. A person is not made to be a slave. A person is not born a slave. They are enslaved at birth. All right? That's what is going on here. So some of our retrenchment of history, to me, begins with language and how we use language and the things we say. Um, one of the other pet peeves of language that I have is this business where people who have been seriously wounded 
by this country will say things like, well, they hate me because I'm black. And I have begun to say, no, they hate you because they're hateful. Put it in the right place. They have a problem. Now we can begin to understand whether or not how much of ourselves we're going to invest in their problem. Not that they may not be in power to project their problem on you. I'm not in denial about that. But I do think we have to at least begin to understand how much we've all been manipulated to see something that isn't what it really is. So to me, in it, specifically in answer, it begins with a willingness to admit that the history is not what it should be, and a willingness to understand that it is so rooted even into words like dark and light. Mm. O.J. Simpson, when that case first came up, Newsweek deliberately darkened his mm. face mm -hmm. on the cover. And they were asked why, and they said openly because it would reveal the sinister side. Mm. So here we are ingrained with that to the point where this week, what's gone viral, there are two commercials that are important. One is where a young woman of my complexion with a brown shirt on is taking off the shirt and what is revealed is a white person. And it, it is about being clean. Let us not forget that there are songs in Christian religion, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Come on. It's so ingrained that it's a metaphor for something it should never be a metaphor for. The other part of that Dove story, and then I'll leave it there, is that there is a Dove soap bottle. And I actually went to the store because with Photoshop these days on certain things, I don't want to just believe it because I saw it. And that is something else that is, is a warning that we all have to now be very careful of. But the Dove soap bottle says, normal to dark skin. Mm. Mm. Anybody not get that? <laughs> okay. Normal to dark skin. So it, it's about cleaning up the act, you know? It really I, is. The other piece of the question, which I, I think is a really powerful question or observation, I suppose, that everyone feels pain because one of the things that has struck me very recently, I was at a an event at Historic Huguenot Street in which folks told their stories on spending a night living, sleeping in the slave quarters of those buildings. These are the actual basements of the houses in which they would be locked at night if they were enslaved in those properties. And many of them talked about feeling the presence of the ancestors, meaning those who were also locked in that space. And one of them felt an incredible sort of surge of violence toward the people upstairs. And what that did for me was, was remind me that there were people upstairs, okay? And those people had to live with the idea that they would lock in their basement human beings and put collars on those human beings. And what I've been learning is that oppression is, uh, is something that is very visible to the oppressed. And the damage that it does is very visible to the oppressed. What's not visible is the damage it does to the oppressor. So when we talk about pain, I think there is genuine pain that comes from knowing in your heart you are doing wrong towards another human being. Once you, once you have to erase that fact from your mind, this is not wrong. It can't be wrong. Um, it is, it's painful. It's destructive, okay? Um, and I think for a lot of people that still happens now where, where we are just not comfortable living with what we actually know is happening. I think that what you just uh, said it speaks to the fear that's being peddled today, and that fuels the hatred that comes from not acknowledging uh, the fact that we have been 
as as a people treated as not human and that's the the justification for not treating us as human beings and then they don't have to think about it because after all you're not human so the 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 fact that we survived and stand up for ourselves i i had a great conversation with a young man last night who said he was a recovering racist <laughs> because he understands now that the information that he needed to perceive, that he needed to acknowledge is what was done. Because wouldn't you be afraid if you had done what was done to us? Wouldn't you be afraid to be in our presence? So it's, we, we have to get to that point where we can talk about it and say, let's move beyond this and acknowledge, yes, you, what you did was wrong. Yeah. And, and what's the next step? And be prepared for the next yeah. step. Thank you, Janice. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. I wanted to share a quote that I did give last night. Mark Twain referring to the post-Civil War, post-Emancipation Proclamation South. And he said, I missed one thing in the South, African slavery. That horror is gone and permanently. Therefore, half the South is at last emancipated, half the South is free. But the white half is apparently as far from emancipation as ever. Okay, and what he's saying there is what you're referring to with what it takes and the burden that it has put on the person who is locking someone else in the basement at night, putting these colors on, and what that really, whether you want to admit that it is a negative thing being done to you or it's not a negative thing being done to you, that's that's another conversation but what it is doing whether you know it or not to your psyche to to do that kind of thing um, but that whole issue of hu who's human and who's n who's not is also a very convenient conversation when you want to do the person harm they're not human but when you want an enslaved woman to nurse your baby you would not put your baby under a cow Okay, so at that point, you're very clear that it is a human being that you're giving to nurse your baby. Mm -hmm. But when it's convenient to you, you say, oh, no, I mean, and they're not like us. Yeah. Or when you want spare parts for, um, for certain kinds of surgeries or see Marion... Sims, where there is a dispute whether or not the monument to him should remain in Central Park. And this is the man who's called the father of gynecology. But what he was doing was buying black women, enslaved black women, to essentially chop up in the name of studying their organs and without anesthesia, anesthesia that was available at the time. So that's what we're talking about. And I just, and, I, and I'm gonna just add that dehumanization in any form that it takes is for me the fundamental evil. Um, and that can be any, there are a lot of labels. Terrorist, for example, is, an, is a label, predator, is a label. We use these words to situate a person in one very narrow context so that we can do with them what we will mm -hmm. because they are less human than us. They are a thing. We use words, I think, very um, intentionally to do that work. There's a lot of demeaning language out there that that rejects our common humanity. And whenever you see that, you can begin, in my mind, you can begin to see where oppression follows. It just can't help it. Once you stop thinking about a person as, an, as a human being just like me, then, then we're in trouble. Yep. Um, I think, too, uh, I'm a theater major, and I'm fabulous professor over there. She always allows us to have conversations in one of the few um, that I've experienced in my lifetime. But I like to play a lot of historical characters. Like, I like playing my own reflection on what I think. And oftentimes or not, we get told that the ancestors weren't mad, that that was the norm. Mm -hmm. 
And so when we play these characters, sometimes for me, my personal experience has always been, well, you know, for now, I'm, for example, I'm playing Tom Robinson in To Kill a Mockingbird. And for right now, it's like, you know, he's not, he wasn't mad, you know, when he hears the N-word. And I, I had to, you know, argue, and I did a lot of research, and, you know, PBS did the reading of a slave narrative early 2000 before, you know, some of them passed away. And I remember this, this, this man said that any time he would hear the N-word, his backbone would firm up. Yeah. You know, the hair on his neck would raise. And he's been here for over 100 years, and I'm trying to explain to, you know, people that we were pissed off, you know? <laughs> and, sorry. <laughs> But, you know, in, in, to, in today's time, I feel, and sometimes the silence of my generation comes from the fear of looking angry. Mm -hmm. And That is not new. The, yeah, is which, not is, new. which is what I'm trying to say. Yep. You know, it, it's not new, yep. and it's continuously going on and going on. And I can't tell you how many times I'm in a situation where I'm silenced because I don't want to look like the angry black person. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it's interesting thank you, that you thank you, thank you for, that. for that sharing. But but thank I wanted to, while you were up oh, there, I'm get sorry. your no, that's okay. Get your <laughs> reflection on it, because Alice Walker has a wonderful statement. She said that writing, so we can tr just extrapolate that out, saved me from the sin and inconvenience of violence. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you first. I am here as an actor because of the color purple. And Alice Walker, one of my favorite quotes from her is, sometimes truth is so much we have to go to art because that's the only way for it to come out. And I completely agree with the statement in that um, art is really, in my opinion, sometimes in the many forms, the only way to get stuff out. I remember reading Maya Angelou's Why the Caged Bird Sings. And I remember for the first time in my life, I read my own reflection. Mm. And from that day forward, I'm, I'm a writer first before I'm anything else. Mm. And so from that day forward, I've always written the reflection of people who have been silenced, not just black people, but LGBTQ mm. women. And I, I, I'm a huge advocate and I use my work, whether it's through poetry or acting, to stand up for human beings. Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. A lot of strong people coming yes. from Brooklyn. Yeah. 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 Shout out to Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So my name is Chris Whitaker. I'm with the School of Education, and we're really honored and uh, pleased to have Dr. Adams here on campus. Thank it's you. really a delight. And I was really um, touched by, you know, the title of the project when to know to leave the plantation. Know when to leave the plantation. Know when to leave the plantation. And I just wanted to share a story, uh, an anecdote, and get your feeling from it, especially in light of your latest project, Escape to Freedom, uh, on the underground. My wife and I, for the first 10 years, lived in New Paltz, and we would always um, walk along on the weekend, Huguenot Street, and we'd walk out to the marker for the African-American burial ground. We'd stop there almost every time, and we, it would often bring up conversation, reflection. The interesting thing was, although we would talk about it because we would go there, nobody else did in the contemporary setting. It was this reality that was kind of like, oh, yeah. Um, but let's move on. This is the modern world, blah, blah, blah. So it wasn't until just this summer I went to Maine on the coast and I met Ashley Bryan, who's winner of um, Coretta Cott's, Scott King um, Awards and Honors, yes. and a wonderful artist and uh, storyteller. And I got a lovely tour of his home, and he and I share an interest in folktales. And so we had, it was very engaging. I ended up writing an article on him about his book on African tales. but. His most recent work, um, which won the Newbery honor, Freedom Over Me, 11 Slaves, Their Lives, and Dreams Brought to Life. And what was so engaging, engaging about it was that he looked at the lives that the slaves lived on one page, and the other page he imagined what um, their lives could have been from the little bit of research that he had done. 
really empowering and very moving piece. Beautiful artwork, too. I just found it interesting that I had to go to Maine and meet this mm -hmm. person, um, a wonderful artist, but still someone you know, not local, to have a conversation about our own burial ground um, and on Huguenot Street. And I was wondering if you could just speak to um, speak to that and our own uh, conversation around um, local history. Mm. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. A couple of things came to me when you were saying it, and one was that I just saw a powerful piece of choreography coming out of that. I said, "Oh, that should be choreographed," mm. you know. Anyway, um, <laughs> um, but I think, I'm trying to think of the right word. Mark Twain said that the difference between the right word and the almost right word is the difference between lightning and the lightning bug. <laughs> so I'm sitting here trying to think of the right word, not the almost right word, but, but right now, um, in the interest of time, this displacement of reality is to some extent, I think, why we don't see it on the local level. Um, earlier I was having a conversation with, with Dr. Christian and I was talking to him about, you know, once again, language and the way we look at things. When we talk about this disgraceful situation of the number of unarmed people who've been killed, murdered by police. And we don't want to acknowledge that it's murder. We don't want to acknowledge that it is premeditated. Whether they, no, they didn't leave their ho homes that morning and say, I'm going to maul somebody, I'm going to murder somebody. But it's premeditated in the sense that, number one, they are of the mindset to do that. And number two, they have not been screened out for people who have that mindset, so they're not put in those positions in the first place. But if this were happening at this rate in some other country, we'd call it state-sponsored terrorism, because it is. That's exactly what it is. You have an instrument of the government that is being allowed to go out and kill people. And then we actually justify it. I think that is the larger local versus, you know, but the, the depth of the problem that you're speaking to shows that it can, it can be that small, not noticing that sign and wanting to deal with the sign. And when you go into denial about that sign that's facing you, then you can keep your denial growing and growing and growing to the point now where you don't even acknowledge that there's something wrong with police officers just shooting people. That's what comes to mind. I just want to share one other thing, um, really for, for comment, because I had a very interesting experience last night, or, or painful, difficult, uncomfortable conversation. Last night I told a story about an incident that happened to me, which was an attempted rape by someone who was obviously an official person, either, uh, I still don't know exactly who he was, a faculty person or state government person, because he was driving a state car. I got away from him, and I got back to where I was living, and I, the house mother immediately called the police, and the police came, and they were all right with taking it as long as they thought the person was, quote, an apple picker, which was the derisive term at the time for the people upon whom this, essentially the descendants of the slaves, but the, who are now migrant workers, but, but the black, Latino, Chicano people who this area is dependent upon for their labor still, but the derisive term dismissively was to call them apple pickers. And as long as I thought, the man thought I was talking about an apple picker, the police officer, he was willing to take it down. But when I said no, it, it was a white man with a suit and I gave a description and everything, the police suddenly turned on me and said, why you little whore? If you think we are going to 
destroy a good man's life for a whore like you? And then they stormed out. So, but after the speech, this man came to me and he said, I knew those men and they were heroes of mine. And Veronica just gave me greater clarification. I was saying, well, how, did, how does he know? She said, because there were only two at the time, and now we only have three. <laughs> <laughs> so I think one of the things that that story brought out to me was that not only the denial, going back to this part of the story, but what is really happening when people are unwilling to understand that sometimes it's your own brother, sister, father, mother, who's doing these horrible things. As one school administrator talked about whether or not to bring my, at that point, um, it, it was a project that I was working on that around African-American literature, and she said, but we, ca we can't. We fun finally decided that we can't bring this to our school, and I asked why, and she said, because parents and teachers are afraid. Who asked me the question about history? Um, because parents and teachers are afraid that if we tell the children the truth, they'll think their ancestors were bad. I wanted to, may I jump in just real quickly? I wondered, after the man spoke to you and said they were my heroes, mm -hmm. Did you have a sense that something had changed in him as a result of your speaking? Something not only changed in him, but um, it changed in our exchange because he was now, we had had dinner together. He had, we had a relationship based on we're all together in this, you know, you're the guest speaker. And then all of a sudden it was though I had destroyed something for him that had been important to him all his life. But he's the person I was referring to as the recovering okay. racist. Okay. And so okay. he was having that thought and understood. And We're talking about one, the, the same person. And I had the, 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 the distinct impression that he was genuinely um, wanted to have open conversation about how we have these moments of clarity for other people. And, and because that, it took that incident for him to realize Excuse me, that incident meaning what you the, just talked the about. Event. Yes. Okay. And uh, so it was eye opening for him, which is why he said what he said to you. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to say that is how we get beyond the hatred and the fear of acknowledging what was done, that we have to tell the truth. I, I think I felt it was brave of him, honestly. Yes. Um, but I also, f and I felt that something deep within him had, had happened. Because he said from childhood, these had been his heroes. Right. And so all of a sudden, I mean, if he just said, I know these guys, you know, and I've known them all my life, but to say they were heroes means that something changed. But I think um, what, I'm, what I saw in him also was the openness mm -hmm. um, and the willingness to not go into denial. Hence, I guess, why he said to you, recovering racist because these are uncomfortable conversations. They go into, sometimes you'll hear something like, you, you hear people talk about the country in general and it becomes very personal. One of the things that I'm very clear about is that if it's bad, and I'm, if we think it's bad with me talking about African American history, isn't it interesting how much less we talk about Native Americans? Okay. And um, that really, to me, says it all. So another trick that I use when I'm talking to people is because some will look at me and they'll kind of automatically expect that I'm going to say something about black people. Um, and if I'm talking to a white woman, I will very often use white women's history to, make, to illustrate the point. And then it's for, for those women who are blocking, all of a sudden the denial, they know they can't deny that. And then they see the commonality.
My name is Samantha, and I just hear a lot of people talking about truth. And just from my standpoint, um, I don't feel like, I feel like now in America, people tell truth. You know, they'll put it out there. Um, this company don't like black people. Or this company will come out and say they're mad that this brand is associated with black people or so on and so forth. And now I just feel like they're okay with giving you truth, but nothing comes after the truth. So they'll say, like, okay, my ancestors did this, and you know, because of this, you guys are where you are now, but that's where we're gonna leave it. And I feel like that's the problem that we're facing now. We're getting the truth, or some of the truth that we're looking for, it's just nothing comes after that truth, you know? That's very Wash, that's yeah. a wonderful comment. Yeah. Hi, I'm Gwyneth Floyd, the director of the Counseling Center here at SUNY New Falls. So I must tell you that on a personal level, um, from the time I saw you know, you coming, I just laughed a lot. And I laughed because I'm my very best friend that I met in college. We've been best friends since some of, of um, previous our college years. And every morning we're on the phone. I live in New York, she lives in Jacksonville, Florida, but every, just about every morning we're on the phone on our way talking about work. And one of our favorite sayings, believe it or not, is, I'm on my way to the plantation. We always call each other every morning. You know, hey, where are you? I'm on the way to the plantation. I'm gonna see what Massa has planned for me. And that's how we have coped with the subtlety and the overt racism that we encounter. So when I saw your presentation and I saw the name, I called, I said, guess what? You won't <laughs> believe this. There's somebody that's gonna come and talk about no when it's, when it's time to leave the plantation. And we just laughed. And I couldn't imagine what the presentation was gonna be about. But you know, we, we talked about it as a way of, you know, of coping, you know, and how we encountered the challenges, the inherent challenges of racism. And I've been at this, at, I knew Doc Butler, I've, I've been here a long time. And um, so I thought, oh, wow, when to leave the, it, it, it really resonated with me. And last night, the only reason I couldn't be, I had a very important appointment in New York City and I so wanted to hear, what is this gonna be about? <laughs> so when this came about and you said, oh, I, I said, I gotta go hear her. But it's our way of coping. I think we all encounter racism, what we call it, how we define it, and the metaphors that we use to cope. And uh, in light of my many experiences here, the subtle and the overt, you know, racist encounters that I've had, this, this is the plantation, <laughs> you know, to me. Sometimes it feels like I'm relieving the plantation. And so I just kind of wanted to share that and how we cope, you know, the different ways that we used to cope. One, I have a great job, I thoroughly enjoy what I do, but I'm always mindful of the community that I serve, the, the community that I'm a member of, and the subtle and the overt racism that continues, that, that will persist way beyond, you know, my, but I had to find a way of how I'm gonna cope on a daily basis. So up to this morning, you know, we were on the phone, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm going on the plantation, I'm on my way to the plantation, let's see what Master has planned for us. <laughs> so it was a very apropos title for where I am on my own journey of coping. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. That was great. Um, yes, I have someone here. This discussion has just been very like interesting for me because it's everything that I've always felt and never really heard expressed out loud. Um, but just kind of my story, I, I went to a private all-boys Catholic school for seven years. Um, everyone there was the same as me. Everyone there was white. They came from good family. Um, not a good family, but a typical family structure. Um, and they had these opinions, you know, prejudices, hate, anger, and um, I shared that too. I, I, you know, we all shared in whose who's group racism, mm -hmm. um, and it was just, it was just it was normal and it was it was comfortable. Um, and I, I didn't I really I didn't even know why I felt that way. I just everyone else just around me did, so I thought that I had to as well. And coming to college totally different experience. 
I, I was now around a diverse group of people who had different opinions than me and who, you know, were not afraid to tell me that I'm wrong. Um, and one of the hardest things that I ever had to do was to tell myself that I was wrong. And now I just look back on it and I just can't even believe that I ever had those feelings because I feel so much happier now. I feel a sense of, you know, I even feel a sense of liberation. And like, I just, I just want to tell all, every racist person me, I want to <laughs> say, racism hurts everybody. Yeah. You know, you, you, you don't understand. You'd be so much happier if you just lived in the truth. Wow. Mm. Wow. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, Send it to yeah. Dove. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it, and, it, and it goes back to this, that everybody is in pain. I mean, I think that's so important to realize. It's just that some people think that what they're doing is insulating them from that pain. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's just bottling it up. It's still there. Piggybacking on what both of you are saying, I, I, I'd say I see racism um, cross-culturally. I come from Pakistan. Uh, over there, where my people are very racist towards, Pakistanis would be very racist towards Indians. Uh, those people will be racist towards Bangladeshis because of the color of your skin. It's really what it is. Some, one group of people is lighter than the other. Uh, for example, in Afghanistan, there's very uh, light-colored people. And if they see a dark person, they automatically label them and the interaction doesn't go well. So I like to look at, uh, well, I believe that individual society improves through things like this, uh, dialogue and, and community outreach. And that solves a lot of the individual issue. But on a higher level, the society and the, the systematic racism is something to be addressed. Holding people to a high stature from history, uh, from the past, I like to bring up uh, founding fathers and, and the notion that we have about their nobility and how, how high we hold them in the lofty positions that, in our mind. And they're guilty of, of holding these same ideas that we're calling out against. And they're guilty, or they are the ones who, with their own tongues and with their own hands, develop the system of state uh, that we're currently living in. And I think it's important to address that on a systematic level. If that changes, if the, if the system sees uh, black, white, and different colors uh, differently than it does now, I think it will trickle down to individual society very quickly, as opposed to going from individuals up. So I, I want to jump in and say there are, um, we're very fortunate to have a lot of students here in the room, and many of them have been speaking. I've been very grateful for their speaking, but I know there are some who haven't spoken. Wonderful. Thank you so much. So the question stems from a Facebook argument in which I was called racist a couple times. This person didn't know me, didn't know where my heart's at. Like, I've devoted several art pieces of mine to visions of equality. Like, that's where my heart's at, that's where my head's at, that's where everybody, I believe, should be at. But um, the question I have, because this was a point that was brought up by said person, are white people inherently racist? Mm. I've been toiling with it myself. Like, I don't know the answer to it. I don't know if anybody knows the answer to it. Because like, I feel like hatred is a learned thing, so that's one and the same, like racism is a learned thing. And obviously it's hard to escape it when we're learning it in school. Like This first semester I've spent at New Paul's, I've learned so much about things that I didn't know about mm -hmm. previously because it was taught to me the wrong way, in my opinion. So, You know, um, I'm going to say something. I, I, people may jump on me. I feel like the whole racist label is problematic anyway. I think we spend a lot of time in this country looking for racists under every bush, like, oh, there's one. And there's this sort of idea I get that if we just get rid of all the racists, we'd be okay, you know? And, and I think this whole idea of label, again, I feel like labels are just, they're dehumanizing. Um, what we need is just education. We just, you know, I think to, to say, are all white people racist is the wrong question. You know, the question for me would be, how do we bring 
people into a full understanding of the humanity of everybody, you know, and stop like sort of trying to look for, hey, you know, um, that that person because it's not just about race. Race is what we're we're, we're tending to talk about here. Domestic abuse, um, child abuse. There are all kinds of ways that we are ignoring truth that's all around us. You know, that's my thing: is just be awake to the fact that there may be a structural element to why that person is, you know, where they are. That may be why what you said about so the person will acknowledge it and then end of story, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. But isn't there still something where we have to distinguish between individual racism and institutionalized mm -hmm. racism? I, I mean, you're the expert, but I, I, would, I would agree 100%. I see there's another speaker here. Is that, did you, or did you? What's your first thought that you had about educating? I'm going to have to disagree with you on that one because I feel as though we spend enough time researching uh, people of color in particularly, what's wrong in the communities with people of color, what's wrong and how, and I haven't seen so many Oprah episodes with going in the community. And it's never a research about the people or the institution that places these people there, which is to me how any of us are where we are in this moment in time, both privilege and disadvantage. And I think that we have to be honest enough to say that and to have the conversation and bring that into the room um, so that we can break down that sort of stuff. Maya Angelou always says, anyone human can never be alien to me. We all are responsible for each other and making sure we are you know, moving along and progressing. But I think that I struggle with the most sometimes is it gets to be a lot for me to always be the one in a room to have to educate people. I mean, at some point it's common sense, you know, and, and we should all go out and to research and look up stuff ourselves and not ask the one black person who sits in the classroom or the one LGBTQ out openly person that, you, you know. Uh, what they think their opinion is because we can't speak for everything and everyone. Thank you. Yes, right here. I yeah, think um, this takes me back to the um, point that um, Peter made, and also going back to what you said last night, the need to rethink how history is taught. Yes. Um, it, it reminds me, too, of James Lowen's book, Lies My Teacher Told Me. And uh, even though his book was out from the 90s, there seemed not to be any effort either to, to address a lot of these uh, at all, as uh, the historian will tell you here, that the moment you touch on some of these issues, you, you hear that you are being revisionist. How do you speak to that? Me? Yes. <laughs> um, revisionist? Yes, revisionist oh, yeah. history. It needs to be revised. <laughs> yes. You know, um, I, I guess my answer is thank you. <laughs> it does need to be revised, and that's why I said the history, as ha it has been told, needs to be changed. It, if you have a history that doesn't include black people, doesn't include Native American people, doesn't include women, doesn't include um, Latino people, doesn't include Chicano people, well, you've got a Swiss cheese history. And so, yeah. In fact, it doesn't even include poor white people, unless you at some point talk about populism and um, Huey Long and he, he got, you know, he excited a lot of poor Southern whites. They really don't even talk about class. America, America never talks about class. One other little thing I want to say. Um, earlier, um, we had talked about Washington being up on a pedestal and Jefferson being up on a pedestal. And, and this notion is sort of attached to the idea of special people. These special people have extra power. Mm -hmm. And I really, I resist that in both directions. I don't actually think that the change that we need is going to come from the top. I actually think the change is going to come from people. And the example I like to use, and I, I would love for people to push back on this because I'm, I'm always testing it, is um, is marriage equality. So um, my sense of why in this country we have marriage equality is not because the people at the top decided it, that it should happen, mm -hmm. but because people 
very courageously stepped out into the light and said, this is my story. And my neighbor and my cousin and my nephew, this is, these are all our story. Um, it's not just, um, it's not just those, those queers over in that corner, excuse my language. It's not just these isolated groups. These are us. These are, we are them and they are us. And it's when you make common cause with people, then it's like, well, well that, it really shouldn't be right that they can't like love each other. Like, well, because they're people. So why would we want people not to love? Like it's, it just, the cognitive dissonance becomes too great. You know, if we could get it into the human realm. But I would love to have people push back on me on this, because this, this is, you know, I speak from, you know, not a strong position, so. Um, Mark, yes. I can't really push back on that idea that you presented about the marriage equality. Um, but I dig a little deeper, okay. and there is a whole process that got there, and it's about people daring to come out. People, for a long time, had to leave home. They had to leave their families, or they were kicked out at 14 years old by their families. And that's still going on. That's part of it. Then a movement happened, and people did very courageous things in that movement. But I think the piece that is so important is that that community got to go home, in large part because they were out enough and in enough places that the fear, misunderstanding, lack of knowledge started to evaporate. And the sense of families wanting to have their kids back again and their uncles and their aunts come back in is what really did it. I noticed at a certain point in time, my friends were going home for Thanksgiving. That hadn't been happening for a decade or two. You know, it was just, it was not a good, comfortable place to be, but that started changing. And that's the humanizing of a community that had been locked out of that for all different reasons for a long time. So I can't disagree with you. <laughs> you know, as I was watching you and you were making that statement, it occurred to me that the other elephant in the room that we haven't discussed is religion. Um, we don't have time, I'm sorry. We got I know. It. We got it. You know. Oh, okay, you've gone That's far enough. That's a whole new thing. But that is the elephant in the room. It certainly is. I'm so glad you brought up religion because I think that goes back thousands of years and has justified all kinds of racism, sexism, um, you name it, ism. And that's something that we don't really publicly discuss at all, uh, the negative value of religion throughout history. Um, so many of you have said so many interesting things uh, that have been going through my mind, and I'm gonna keep it short because I don't wanna uh, you know, take more than another 30 seconds. Uh, what you said, you asked, are white people inherently racist? And I would immediately say, no, they are not. And I don't like the concept of race. Uh, I think it's a, it's a construct. It's, there's nothing scientific about it. Fact, um, yeah. I like what you said about different people discriminating and being prejudiced and being brutal towards other people. And I'm thinking of the Rohingya in um, Myanmar at the moment. And what Samantha said also struck me, you know, we know these truths, and what are we going to do about it? Right. And I think there's no simple answer. So what you do about it, and what I do about it, and what you do about it, and, you know, it's all different. Thank you. Rennie Scott Childress, I actually teach history here. And um, I'd like to build a little bit on what Peter said. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, two uh, writers in particular, Barbara Jean Fields, who wrote a book called Racecraft, and John Powell, who's written a lot about race. And uh, Fields makes the argument along the lines of what Peter was just talking about, that there's no such thing as race. Uh, a lot of academics have made this argument, and, but I always like to put on my board at the beginning of the semester, there's no such thing as race, so why are we still talking about race? The point is that um, when we talk about these things, racist is a label, but it's important, I think, especially for white folks, to embrace the possibility of being racist. 
because the, the second you say, well, I can divorce myself from that label is the moment when you then say, I don't have to work on this anymore. And so that said, though, at the same time, if there's no such thing as race, there is a such thing as racism, which is the practice of dehumanizing other people. So again, as you said, that's something that we learn. That's not something that we inherently do. And so in following from that, it's really important then to always be thinking about not just what have these other people done that's racist, what's the possible racist structure. We use racist as an adjective and we consider, have I done anything that's racist in nature? Have I committed an act of racism? But that also then takes us beyond thinking in terms of simple oppositions. A lot of the way that that kind of hatred works is in a simple opposition. I am who I am because I'm not that. And so uh, Powell is very important. He was talking about um, this, uh, the way that we think of ourselves. And instead of thinking in opposition, we need to think of ourselves in relational terms. And by doing that, we can create different kinds of coalitions, different kinds of ways of connecting with one another that give us some of the impetus to get beyond the kind of racism acts that we may commit, the practices of racism that we may still be imbued with even as we argue against them. Thank you. Just to answer what you're saying, I think my thoughts are that um, <clears throat> if you're asking the question of inherently racist, I think it comes down to uh, character flaw. Because mm. in, in the, the, the beginning of it all, one person believes that, or one person is being arrogant towards another. And I think that's what racism is. When one person favors uh, maybe their own kind over a different color, okay? And so uh, they, they get favorable circumstances. And if they had good character, say they would be humble about their, their circumstance and appreciate what they had. But instead, due to a lack of good character uh, and a lack of et cetera, they begin to be arrogant towards the other person hmm. based on these, these assumptions they've made up themselves. And so, in my opinion, that's where it starts off hmm. at the very beginning. But, I mean, systematic racism is a, is a whole different story. Uh, and I just wanted to, to address something. Uh, I lead the Muslims on this campus. I, I, I just came from a lecture. That was, that's why I was late. I was leading the Friday prayer. And I'd say that um, everyone has a different metric for uh, examining truth. It's not always science. Uh, we have beliefs that we hold. Uh, the reason I'm here is because of a statement in the Quran. Uh, God says, um, in Arabic he says, this might be interesting. He says, Ya amanu kunu O you who believe, stand with justice for Allah. Whether it be, walaw ala anfusikum, whether it be against yourself, or against your parents, or towards those who are closer to you. Stand for justice. That's why I'm here. Mm. Yeah. That's powerful. Thank you for sharing that. I did not grow up as a, as a racist. Um, my ancestors in southern Illinois uh, lived in a very racist culture, and they worked in the Underground Railroad, and they were abolitionists, and they risked their lives in a very redneck area to help slaves escaping. So that's my background. But you can never do enough to alleviate the injustice that you see everywhere. There's no simple, what are you going to do, Samantha? Samantha, you have to figure out what you're going to do, whether it's writing, whether it's raising your children, whether it's um, uh, you know, starting an organization. There's really no limit to what you can do. Can I just add one thing? The one and thing you can't do is nothing. You can't mm. be quiet. You can't be silent. You must speak. You, you, when you hear and when you see what's happening and when you become educated and when you become informed. And I mean, I'm, I'm exhorting like I'm all that. I'm not, you know. And I do not go out and speak to everybody, I, you know, because I mean, I, I take your point as well. There's a point where, you know, as an African-American in a continually kind of minority setting, one does get tired. But it's not just the dark-skinned people who need to speak. It's everybody who needs to speak. And we need to speak from safety. You know, we, in other words, we can't speak when it's when, you know, we're surrounded by people who want to bash our heads in and then we start giving them the lecture. 
But at the same time, we have to hold the goal of raising each other, I feel, raising each other up to speak. We support each other. That's my whole thing with these conversations. They exist so we support each other to practice this stuff. Yeah.